First Chronicles chapter 12. <clears throat> Here in this chapter, it's about David's mighty men. And here we have more information that teaches us more about David. Information that's not found anywhere else in Scripture. And the writer continues his list of moral and fearless men who attach themselves to David. And listed here are men that came to David and became David's friends after Saul died to bring about God's ultimate plan. So let's begin as we read verse 1, chapter 12. It says, now these were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish, and they were among the mighty men, helpers in the war. About 25 miles southwest of Gath was Ziklag, the city of Ziklag, and it became David's own private little city. He received it after he took off to hide in Philistia, trying to get away from Saul. And he had placed himself under the leadership and the lordship of Achish, who was the ruler of the city-state of Gath. David then became an ally and a puppet of Achish. And as a result, David was required to pay taxes and show his loyalty and his submission to him. So David would go out from Ziklag, and he would raid different desert tribes. And he would take their belongings, and he would bring some of them, or some of the plunder, plundered goods back uh, to the Philistines. The rest he would distribute to his countrymen without the Philistines knowing. In the meantime, many other outlaws and refugees from Judah joined David at Ziklag until he had a pretty good number, a pretty good size of mighty men there with him. So all the army that he had while he was uh, so all the army he had while he was persecuted was 600 men. Providence or the hand of God brought these men to David to help him. Look at verse 2. And it says, These helpers in the war, verse 2, were armed with bows, using both the right hand and the left in hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bow. They were of Benjamin, Saul's brethren. So included among his warriors were these ambidextrous Benjamites some of Saul's own fellow tribesmen. Now, this shows how dissatisfied they were with King Saul's rule. Some of these men were ambidextrous, meaning they could use the right hand as well as the left hand, which is kind of odd because the name Benjamin means son of the right hand. Let's look at verses 3 through 7 now. The chief was Ahazer, then Joash, the sons of Shemaiah, the Gibeathite, Jeziel, and Pelet, the sons of Amazeth. And, and uh, uh, Barakah and Jehu, the, An- the Anthothite, Ishmael, the Gibeonite, and mighty man among the 30, and over the 30, Jeremiah, Jehaziel, Johanan, and Josabad, uh, the Gedrathite, Eluzai, Jeremoth, Beliah, uh, Shemariah, and Shephthiah, the, the Harufite, Elkanah, Jeshiah, Azrael, Joezer, Jashobim, the Korahites, and Joliah, and Zebediah, the sons of Jehoram of Gedor. Now, these are the names of the men that joined and assisted David. Now, look at verses 8 through 15. Some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty men of valor, men trained for battle who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and were, were as swift as gazelles on the mountains. Ezer the first, Ob, uh, Obadiah the second, 
Eliab the third, Mishmanah the fourth, Jeremiah the fifth, Atai the sixth, Eliel the seventh, Johanan the eighth, Elzabad the ninth, Jeremiah the tenth, and Machaniah, uh, Machaniah the eleventh. These were from the sons of Gad, captains of the army. The least was over a hundred, and the greatest was over a thousand. These are the ones who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it had overflowed all its banks, and they put to flight all those in the valleys to the east and to the west. So the Gadites that joined David, it says here, they were mighty warriors. They were mighty men of valor, verse 8 says. It says they were trained for battle, and they could handle the shield and the spear. Now David had attracted a following from all over Israel. The Gadites, they came from the far northern and central areas of the Jordan to join him. The stronghold that's mentioned here was the cave of Adullam. It was David's main place to hide. It was his refuge in the Judean wilderness. The qualities of these men, these brave men, are the qualities that should be obvious in all Christians as the soldiers of Jesus Christ and warriors in the war against evil. Paul called Epaphroditus his brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier in Philippians 2.25. He called Archippus our fellow soldier in Philemon 2. Timothy, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.3, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You see, we're soldiers in this world and in this life. We're in the Lord's army. And this world is enemy territory that we're in. It's a battlefield. And yet to many Christians, they treat it as, it was a, as if it was a playground. First of all, as soldiers of the cross, we should be faithfully attached to our commander. Like the Gadites were who joined David, so should Christians be who are drawn by the Holy Spirit to serve under the banner of the Lord, serving under His flag. And it's normal that Christianity requires a personal attachment and loyalty to the Redeemer. Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation, after all. And we owe Him our loyalty. We owe Him loyalty. When He commands us to draw the spiritual sword for His cause, we should fight. We're called to fight. We owe Him our life. Obedience even unto death. If called for. It's like this. D.L. Moody says this. When a man enters the army, he's just as much a member as a man who has been in, our, in the army 10 to 20 years. But enlisting is one thing and participating in a battle is another. You see, there's a lot of Christians who have enlisted in Christ's army, but they're not in the battle. They're spectators, not participators. They don't want to fight. John Chrysostom, the martyr, said, You are but a poor soldier if Christ, of Christ if you think you can overcome without fighting and suppose you can have the crown without the conflict. Secondly, as soldiers of the, as soldiers of the cross, we are divinely qualified for the battle. God just didn't call us and say, Get out there and fight. We're divinely qualified for the battle. Because the Christian of our salvation has provided us with weapons and he breathes courage into our hearts. The psalmist said in Psalm 144.1, Blessed be the Lord my rock, notice, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. In Exodus 15.3, we read the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. 
In Isaiah 59, 17 through 18, we read, For he, that is God, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly, he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully repay. These verses, Isaiah 59, 17 through 18, these, this is the fullest description of the Lord as a warrior. A lot of people don't consider God a warrior. Oh, he's a God of love. He's a God of kindness. He's also a God of war. And the Bible supports that. You see, when God enlists us in his spiritual army, he disciplines us and he trains us for the battle. He gives us those moral qualities that we need for the fight for the endurance and the boldness, the promptness and the devotion that qualifies us to fight the good fight. Paul said we are thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thirdly, we are soldiers of the cross. And as soldiers of the cross, we are expected with God's help to do great works. Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, we have a very fearsome enemy. And his opposition is very strong. And Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. In the air and on the ground, inside and out, we face an enemy whose skill and power we don't dare underestimate. Because we read in Genesis 3.1, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Satan is the original phony. He's the original imitator, the original liar, murderer, thief, destroyer. He's clever, he's smooth, and he's powerful. And he disguises his true character. And if necessary, Paul said he can transform himself into an angel of light. Now when he came to the garden... Satan used the body of a serpent, one of God's creatures that he had pronounced good. But Eve didn't seem to be bothered by the serpent's presence or its speech. So we can assume she didn't see anything threatening about this meeting. But at the same time, the soldiers of Christ have no reason to be afraid either and discouraged because no weapon formed against us shall prosper. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And we're encouraged or exhorted to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Strong in who? The Lord. In whose power? His power. God's power. We're also told it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Jesus told Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. In other words, whatever you need, my grace is enough. Whatever you're going through, my grace is enough to get you through it. He says, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. God has an affinity for weakness. He said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He says, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. Our Lord Jesus and our leader Jesus has conquered and he's taken his seat on his throne of victory and from the throne he encourages. He, in, he guides and he helps us. Everyone and everything that's against God are under his power and control. 
we are in a holy war. We are in a fight against evil that, that, that you know, we as Christians are called to. And we're commanded to fight. And surely, victory belongs to the faithful soldier. The faithful soldier. Jesus calls on everyone who hears his gospel to enlist under his banner. Look at verses 16 through 18 now. Then some of the sons of Benjamin and Judah came to David at the stronghold. And David went out to meet them and answered and said to them, If you have come peaceably to help me, my heart will be united with you. But if to betray me to my enemies, since there is no wrong in my hands, may the God of our fathers look and bring judgment. Then the Spirit came upon Amasai, chief of the captains, and he said, We are yours, O David. We are on your side, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. So David received them and made them captains of the troop. These verses, 16 through 17, suggest, first of all, David's offer was made to the upright. There in verse 17. David made this offer to the men of Benjamin and Judah who were in good faith. Now, David didn't mean one thing when he was in danger and then something else when he was safe. David totally intended to do what he said. One of the reasons for David's success as a leader was he kept his word. There's nothing worse than somebody who says one thing and then turns around and does another. He promises you one thing and doesn't keep it. We like people. We need people with integrity who say what they mean and they mean what they say. That's why David was a good leader. Secondly, the resource of the committed was God. Verse 17. When David went out to meet these men, he put himself in their power. That is, he put his life basically in their hands because he made them an offer that they may or may not accept. If they accepted his offer, well, they would strengthen his army. They would strengthen his position. They would be a great help to him. But if they refused, they might go against him and they might bring him under their power. But he warned them about betraying him he says look you guys if you decide to take advantage of my confidence i have one great resource god and if you turn me over to my enemies that god of our fathers will see it and he will bring judgment upon you so as a last resort the devoted man david can or any devoted man or woman can always fall back on divine intervention Daniel said in chapter 3, verse 17, O our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us from your hand. Things can never be so bad when you are a servant of righteousness because, you see, you have one valuable resource, and that's God Almighty. The God who rebukes the guilty and helps and comforts the righteous. But, listen, his help and his comfort against the enemy is only to those who can say, like David did in verse 17, there is no wrong in my hands. There's no wrong in my hands. I'm standing with a good conscience and a clean hands before God. That is, those who have an awareness of righteousness and reconciliation who have, are the ones who have this refuge when they need it. Thirdly, the decision of, of the wise were made in verse 18. Amasai. Or Amasa. Amasai was probably another way of spelling Amasa, which was the son of David's sister, Abigail. They made a wise decision. 
he became, or Amasai, or Amasa, became David's commander of the army after Joab had fallen out of favor with David. But he only held the position for a little while before he was assassinated by Joab. Those who know what's best to do, like Amasa did, will join themselves, not to the cause of the man who has forsaken God, and whom God has forsaken, in this case we're talking about Saul, but he will, he will join the cause of the man, or he will join the side of the one who serves God, and the one that God helps. In this case, we're talking about David. The one that your God helps is the one that we should join ourselves to and put our interests in. The prayer, we see, was of the wise. In verse 18, they said, Peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers, David. The thoughtless and shallow-hearted person may wish for their friends to have a life of pleasure or power or fame, but the wiser heart wishes for that person's peace of heart. There's, there's no blessing so real and great and lasting as peace of mind and a, and a rest in the heart and stillness in the soul. And then this is the result of the wise. Notice it says, peace, peace to you because your God helps you. If God is our helper and he's always ready to be our helper and he will be our helper to those who sincerely and continually seek his help, and if he gives us the helpful influence of, of his instruction, his renewing and sanctifying and comforting spirit, there will be peace in our life. Great peace. Paul said peace that passes all understanding. No, uh, not peace like the world gives, Jesus said. But he said, my peace I give to you. His peace. The peace of Jesus Christ himself. Look at verses 19 through 22 now. And some from Manasseh defected to David when he was going with the Philistines to battle against Saul, but they did not help them. For the lords of the Philistines sent him away by agreement, saying, He may defect to his master Saul and endanger our heads. When he went to Ziklag, those of Manasseh who defected uh, to him were Adna, Josabad, uh, JDL, Michael, Josabad, Elihu, and Zilathai, captains of the thousands who were from Manasseh. And they helped David against the bands of raiders, for they were all mighty men in valor, and they were captains in the army. For at that time, they came to David day by day to help him until it was a great army like the army of God. Some from Manasseh defected to David. God gave them a fair chance to choose who they would serve, when he and his men marched through their country on this occasion. This incident shows us how compromised David's position was when he was a puppet to Achish or Ga or, 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 of Gath and was pressed into, into joining the Philistines against Saul at Gilboa. But as it turned out, the other Philistine rulers, they didn't support Achish like, David did, like Achish did. You know, David was, you know, Achish was, you know, was in favor of David and he wanted David to stay on and help. But they, uh, the other lords outvoted Achish. They said, hey, we don't trust him. You know, he might join, he might join Saul and you know, they, they might come and, and, you know, and, and you know, endanger us. So they outvoted Achish and they said, hey, send David back to Ziklag before he had to go to. And, they, and they, God, God stepped in and blessed David because this took place before David 
had to go to war against his Israelite brothers. When he came back, some of the great men of Manasseh who had no desire to join with Saul against the Philistines, they joined with David. And it was perfect timing to help him against the Amalekites who raided Ziklag. Now, there weren't many. But you know what? These were mighty men. And they served David well on this particular occasion. We see here how the hand of God provided. Notice verse 22. It says, and at that time. The key word, that time. At that time, they began to come to David day by day to help him. Notice, God was building up David's army when he had to go into this battle. It says, until it was a great army like the army of God. Additional forces kept coming to David, joining David every day until David had a great army. And when it came time to fulfill the promise, leave it, uh, leave it to God to bring in the troops. Look at verses 23 through 40. Now these were the numbers of the divisions that were equipped for war and came to David at Hebron to turn over the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. Of the sons of Judah, bearing shield and spear, there were 6,800 armed for war. Of the sons of Simeon, mighty men of valor, fit for war, 7,100. Of the sons of Levi, 4,600. Jehoiada, the leader of the Aaronites, and with him, 3,700. Zadok, a young man, a valiant warrior, and from his father's house, 22 captains. Of the sons of Benjamin, relatives of Saul, 3,000. Until then, the greatest part of them had remained loyal to the house of Saul. Of the sons of Ephraim, 20,800 mighty men of valor, famous men throughout their father's house. Of the half-tribe of, the, of Manasseh, 18,000 who were designated by name to come and make David king. Of the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, their chiefs were 200 and all their brethren were at their command. Of Zebulun, there were 50,000 who went out to battle, expert in war with all weapons of war, stout-hearted men who could keep ranks. Of Naphtali, 1,000 captains, and with them 37,000 with shield and spear. Of the Danites, who could keep battle formation, 28,600. Of Asher, those who could... Uh, of Asher, those who could go out to war, able to keep battle formation, 40,000. Of the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh from the other side of the Jordan, 120,000 armed for battle with every kind of weapon of war. All these men of war who could keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest of Israel were of one mind to make David king. And they were there with David three days, eating and drinking, for their brethren had prepared for them. Moreover, those who were here, uh, those who were here uh, near to them from as far away as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali were bringing food on donkeys and camels on mules and oxen, provisions of flour and cakes of figs and cakes of raisins, wine and oil and oxen and sheep abundantly for there was joy in Israel. David is about to take the throne. God had promised David the throne. God now is preparing him and providing all things in order for David to do that. When the right time came for David to take the throne, you see, this is, David didn't have to strive to do it. We don't read about David, oh, how, i got only 600 guys, I don't have enough equipment, how am I, I going to do this? He wasn't freaking out. 
He was waiting upon the Lord. And we see him do this often when, when Saul was trying to kill him and, Saul, and, and David had the opportunity to kill Saul. He didn't. He said, Man, God will do it. God may take him out in war. God may you know, just strike him dead. or you know, Somehow God's going to do it. I'm not going to take uh, uh, this problem into my own hands. You know, and, and, and you know, he didn't have to strive. And one difficulty after another just kind of faded away. One group of people after another came to offer their services and commitment to David. And at the right time, you could see the signs of God's grace turning men's hearts toward David. And their loyalty and their wealth and their property were all given to David to help him. Again, notice God provided everything that he needed from the greatest to the smallest thing. Mighty men came and offered their weapons. They offered David his we- their weapons. They offered David their skill and their lives. Notice in verse 32, it says, Men of understanding came. And these men of understanding came and offered their counsel. They offered their powers. They offered their leadership and their authority to help David lead this, this, you know, this, uh, uh, this taking of the throne. Wealthy men came to David. Wealthy men came and offered David all kinds of things that he needed, and they gathered around him, verse 40 tells us, just like the church did in the days of Pentecost. Many times in life, we're made to feel that the circumstances of life are in God's hands. And we recognize his work in removing our difficulties and widening our path. But even when we seem to be hindered by our fellow men, and we see that their hearts aren't with us, really, they're not with God, that in answer to our prayer and in fulfilling his purposes, God can move men's feelings and move them as he pleases. We read in Proverbs 16, 1, the preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. We read in Proverbs 21, 30, that God is sovereign. It says there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. And yet this is the deeper and truer picture of life. That God is working behind the scenes. And the problem with this is, is we don't get it. We don't get that. Until we really get it and we really understand this, we can't truly say, my times are in your hand. Until we understand that God is always working behind the scenes, we're going to fret, we're going to worry, we're going to complain, we're going to take things into our own hands. But this is the place we need to get to. When I look at my circumstances, regardless of what they are, and I can say, you know what? My times are in God's hands. He's in control. Remember it said, at that time, these men became, begin to come to David day by day. At that time. It's God's timing. And also, a man's heart controls how he uses his possessions. We read in Luke, I'm sorry, in Proverbs 23, 7, that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. In other words, a man's heart includes a man's plans, his purposes, and his feelings. A man's heart 
controls how he uses his possession, how he spends his time, how he spends his money, uh, and all of these things. Then shows all, how all, the, all behavior, relations, and uses of property and so on are based on the heart. It's hopeless to try and change a, man, a man's heart. A man's habits. Our hope lies in a change of heart, and that will ensure that, 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 that the needed outward change, uh, but it has to start on the inside. Our hope for man lies in a changed heart. That's what will ensure the outward change. But again, it has to start in the heart. So our Lord offers in his redemptive work to recover and set men's hearts free, and he expresses it in the words, you must be born again. And a man's heart is open to God's influences, to God's promptings, the moving of God's spirit in their heart. We often feel how hard it is to get a man, uh, to, to, to get to a man. You know how many times we just, I just can't get through to him. It's hard. No matter what we do at times, it doesn't seem to work. But God can get through. God is the only one who can get the, to the heart like nobody else can. Because the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints of marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You see, it's the word of God that cuts the heart of sinners with conviction. The emotion, I'm sorry, the emphasis is on the power of the word to penetrate and expose the inner heart of man. If people cause us trouble, we can be comforted knowing that the ruler of all men's hearts, that is our God, allows it only as long as he pleases and he will change that heart when he thinks it's the best time. And knowing this, anybody who does us wrong shouldn't cause us unnecessary stress. God will deal that with that person in his time. Third, a man is responsible for dealing with God's call in their life. This is our biggest responsibility. Dealing with the call of God in our life. God has an inward voice. We read about that still small voice. And it's our duty to listen to that still small voice above all other voices. Now man has... Divine impulses. God gives us impulses. He, he gives us urgings. He, he gives us promptings of the Holy Spirit. Well, uh, he, he tells us through these urgings what we're supposed to do. But the thing is, what do we do with those promptings? Do we crush them? Do we explain them away? Or do we follow them? A hard heart is mostly the result of resisting God's will. It's when I resist those promptings of God, th those, those convictions of God, every time I resist and reject it, I become a little harder and a little harder and a little harder until, guess what? It doesn't, it doesn't have an effect on me anymore. That's what you saw with Pharaoh. Every time Moses came to Pharaoh and said, hey, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no. And God strengthened him a little more in his position. Now, God didn't turn his heart hard. What God did was, that's what you want? Okay. 
And every time Mo, uh, Pharaoh said no, his heart got a little harder and a little harder and a little harder. And that's what happens. A hard heart is mostly the result of resisting God's call. Or, as the New Testament calls it, quenching the Spirit. Resisting the Holy Spirit. These divine impulses can be resisted. You know, rejected or, or, or covered with, over with our own self-interest and neglect. And there are those who say you can't resist the, 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 the impulses of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you can, because the Bible says so. Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. You're doing the same thing your fathers did. You can resist the Holy Spirit, or you can watch for Him and follow Him. It's your choice. If you listen to the call of your heart and you follow the, the, the Holy Spirit, you'll result in, in doing the right thing. Like all of these men here, they, they, were, they were prompted, they were influenced, they were urged to follow David. They were doing the right thing. All of these men came and they served David. They gave themselves to David. Because they were under God's leading. And we'll also be ready to give, our, give of ourselves and our possessions for God's uses. If we're moved in our heart by God. Look at verse 33. It says, Of Zebulun there were 50,000 who went out to battle. They were expert in war with all weapons of war. They were stout-hearted men who could keep ranks. Verse 33 here shows us four important characteristics. The first one, it says in verse 33, they were men expert in war. That means they were dependable. They were experts in what they did. That made them dependable. We have to know what we're doing so that we can be dependable in the cause for Christ. We have to know the word of God. We have to know how to share the word of God so that we can be dependable in the battle. Secondly, it says, notice, they were expert in war, what? With all weapons of war. They weren't just in like one little area of ministry. Like, oh, well, that's not my ministry. They were experts with all the weapons of war, which means they were diligent. They were hardworking because the more weapons they were could use, the better they, uh, equipped they would be in the war. Imagine you have 10 weapons there and you only know how to use one. What happens if that one breaks or jams? Those other nine are useless because I don't know how to use them. They were diligent. They worked hard. It says, thirdly, they were stout-hearted. You know what that means? They were loyal. They came to David with a loyal heart. They weren't double-minded. They weren't double-hearted. The fourth thing is, it says they were men who could keep ranks. Verse 38 tells us that. Men, uh, verse 33, I'm sorry, and 38. Men who keep ranks. You know what that means? They submitted to authority. Men who could keep ranks, they knew how to stay in line. Verse 38 says they were of one mind. In all of this, we see they were single-minded. These are excellent characteristics for every Christian. 
who's going to serve God faithfully. Scripture always says a lot about sincerity and wholeheartedness, unity. Jesus, Jesus told men it was impossible to serve God in mammon. And James rebuked the thought of being a double-minded man in, chapter, in James 1.8. He said, because a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. You don't know which way he's going to go. You don't know what he's going to do. He's over here. He's over there. He don't know where he wants to serve. He doesn't know where he wants to go to church. He doesn't, he doesn't know anything. You can't depend upon him. And many Christians live like corks on the sea of life, up one minute and down the next, bobbing around, tossed to and fro, back and forth. This kind of experience is evidence of immaturity. We need to have believing and united hearts. Instability and immaturity go together. We need to have believing and united hearts. Instability and immaturity go together. Even, even secular life supports Scripture when it comes to single-mindedness. Even the world supports this. Men who are single-minded are focused. They're men of influence and success. They are the kind of men that we're always looking for in every walk of life. The good servants and the good masters in every area. You see, it's hard to have confidence in people who are always hopping from one job to the other or from one church to another. Not finishing every, anything or doing anything resulting in any worth. I mean, those of you who are in management and those of you interview, I know when I used to interview people for positions, one of the things I looked for was their employment history. How many jobs did they have in the last year or the last two years? Five, six? That raised a red flag. If they had a string of jobs in the last year, you wonder why were they going from job to job? Because you surely don't want to hire them, spend the time training them and the money training them, and then in a few months, they're gone. These men that came to David were going to fight with David and for David without divided hearts. And when it came to their loyalty to David, they never gave David any reason to doubt their integrity. Those are the kind of people you need around you in, in leadership. They were in this battle to the end. The word perfect in verse 38 is used in the, in the King James Version. Um, here it's, it's, it's uh, interpreted as stout-hearted or, or loyal, loyal. It's often used in Scripture as the equivalent of whole, entire, complete. Be you therefore perfect, complete, as, as to be perfect. Single-mindedness single is what God looks for in those who serve Him. So Elijah's question to you is, is, is fitting. How long will you falter between two opinions? Or like Balaam. Balaam wanted to obey God, but at the same time he wanted the rewards he was offered to curse Israel. Or Ananias and Sapphira. They wanted the credit that was usually given to devoted disciples, but they also wanted to keep their property. Sincerity guarantees God's approval. This is the first step of God's acceptance. David knew this, and that's why he prayed, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. That is, know my thoughts, and see if there's any wicked way in me. In closing, here's the deal. If our whole being is in love with Jesus and, and serving Him and only Him, 
and we're so totally absorbed in Jesus, it will ensure this single-mindedness like nothing else can. And it shouldn't be hard for any of us to be totally His and to accept our life as a life of single-minded and sincere obedience to Him. Remember Paul's word, for me to live is Christ. For me, as long as I'm alive, it's all about Jesus. No matter how you look at it, nothing can steal a man's joy if he possesses the single mind. My heart is stayed on Jesus. Malty Babcock, who wrote this book, This is My Father's World, said this, Life is what we are alive to. What's the thing that makes you come alive with excitement? In Paul's case, it was Jesus. Jesus was Paul's life. The only thing Paul wanted to know was the power of his, Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Jesus excited Paul. Jesus made Paul's life worth living. Warren Wiersbe, at the end of his commentary on this section, on, on Philippians 1.21, he said, Philippians 1.21, for me to live as Christ and die is gain. He said, it becomes a valuable test of our soul, of our lives. And he put, for me to live is, and he left a blank. And to die is, he left a blank, so that you fill it in. For me to live is what? And to die is what? Is for me to live money and to die is to leave it all behind? Is for me to live fame and to die is to be forgotten? Is for me to live power and then to die is to lose it all? No. We need to, to, to repeat Paul's conviction if we're going to have joy in spite of our circumstances. And if we're going to share in the furtherance of the gospel, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Why? Because I'll be with him. As long as I'm alive in this world, I'm living for Christ. Man, when I die, that's going to be the gainer because I will be with him in person in eternity. Father, we thank you so much for this um, informative chapter, God. Father, help us to glean from it, Lord. Help us to learn what kind of servants that we should be, God. Lord, men and women of, of, of character, of integrity, God. Lord, help us to be loyal. God, help us to be committed, God. Help us to be hardworking, Father. Lord, help us to, to, to be those who, who can stay in line, who can stay in the ranks. Help us to be of one mind, God. Help us to be men and women of understanding, Lord. These are the people that came to David, that God brought to David to help him in his ministry. Lord, help us to be those men and women to those that we serve with in ministry or serve under in ministry, Lord. God, let us not be double-minded, just bobbing up and down on, on the sea of life, God. Being tossed to and fro, going here, going there, never getting planted, never getting rooted, never growing, never doing anything for Jesus Christ, God. Lord, convict us. Lord, your word says the harvest is great, 
but the laborers are few. And Lord, that's the case in every church. Father, bring those men and those women, God, to serve like you did when you brought them to David, God. But first of all, Lord, we need to know Christ in order to serve him well, in order to serve him at all. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we pray that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you and prompted your heart, urged your heart, brought conviction to your heart. The worship team's going to lead us in a time of worship. And at this time, during this time, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you get up out of your seat, you make your way towards the, the steps up front, I'll meet you there, and when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.